Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pro with another episode of Rising Tide Startups. And my guest today is probably the furthest guest I've had from my podcast desk since I started this three years ago. She is literally on the other side of the planet in Shanghai, China. Emily Chang. Emily, thank you for joining us on Rising Tide. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Now I've got her giggling. She can't remember all the notes we talked about before the before the <laughs> podcast. So we got it started off already already threw her off her game. But Emily, please share a little bit about yourself. I'm so happy to. I, I thought you were heading a different direction, which is I I am not a founder. I'm not working in a startup right now. In fact, <laughs> I've worked in very big businesses. Uh, but uh, I would say probably have always had a startup mentality. So I started my educational career in science. I was so convinced I was going to be a doctor, a pediatric oncologist. And then I wow. ended up in MBA. Um, didn't know what to study, didn't understand business at all. So I studied finance because I figured it was kind of close to science. <laughs> That's as much thought as went into that. And then I, I was recruited from my MBA into Procter & Gamble. I worked at P&G for 11 years. And I, you know, I came across this book. It's an old one, but I recently reread it. It's called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. And it's basically the concept. A business classic. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's mostly drawings, which makes it really easy to read. But it's the concept of entrepreneurship in a, within a big company, right? Orbiting the giant hairball. And I think that if, if you asked me, I'd say that's been one of the, the joys of my career. I love being close to a hairball and being part of the companies I've been a part of, but being able to slightly orbit. So after 11 years at Procter, I was recruited into Apple, and that was just an irresistible offer. I loved P&G. I I'm still so close to so many people there, but I think it's important when you feel something that really pulls at every part of your being, mm -hmm. don't leave something, don't leave in the hard moments because we all have hard moments, run towards something so great that you don't burn any bridges and that people kind of cheer you on and say, you know what, man, I, I remember I worked for Lee Radford and when I told her about Apple, she said, I would probably go too. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you. She's also an extraordinary human. So then I was at Apple looking after retail marketing, first in China and then Asia Pacific. I moved over to Intercontinental Hotels Group, and that was another very interesting move. And I think each of these moves put me into a hugely uncomfortable situation because hmm. there was so much to learn. Every time you join a new company, there's more to learn. Right. You don't know the unspoken rules. You don't know the culture. And frankly, there's a scope of work that you're not familiar with. I loved that job for many reasons, mostly because it was a change management experience and there was a lot of complexity. And I, I like I like it when things are sort of more challenging than they are complacent. I like it when your, your goals kind of outpace your resources. So right. you have to work in that scrappy mentality. Right. And then, you know, in, in within Apple and IHG, I realized I really love the concept of customer engagement. And you have a lot of that in hospitality and retail. Mm -hmm. But I firmly believe that the traditional advertising is only a small portion of how we engage consumers moving forward, even outside of retail and hospitality. And I, I wondered who does it the best. And I thought it was Starbucks. So when they called I thought, yeah, even though it's a CMO role and I don't see myself as a traditional 
chief marketing officer. Right, right. There's so much I can learn from Starbucks and hopefully contribute as well. So I was most recently the CMO of Starbucks China before I paused for a year to write the book. So, I mean, I love the, this the trajectory of what you were talking about, because each one of those roles, you probably were stepping into something that, you know, there was always a little fear and trepidation, like I'm not quite ready for mm -hmm. that new role, but I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of gritty enough that I'm just going to step into yeah. it. And I'm going to, I'm going to get there. I'm going to learn. I, I mean, there was a confidence that said, you know, I can learn, I, I can, I can learn the new role. I can learn the new culture. I can bring what I, the best things from my previous role into this new role. But each one of those, I mean, you look back at it's nothing was wasted. I mean, every one of those roles probably built, you know, toward the next thing that you, you had, but not many people have the luxury of just kind of turning it off and just saying, you know what, for a year, I am, I'm just going to take a, a sabbatical in essence and write a book. So what, what was that light bulb moment that, that said, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to quit Starbucks. I'm going to go write my book. And there I was sitting in was the Pacific Northwest you know, <laughs> with a pen and paper. And here we go. Yeah, I think it's sort of built upon itself. So there's this quote I read, I don't know, 20 years ago, dance to life's rhythms instead of making life march to yours. And I really like that. Somebody asked me recently, well, how did you plan your career? And I quoted that quote because I have not planned my career. I thought I was going to be a pediatric oncologist. <laughs> and I do think you touched on a couple of things. I find interesting that phrase, nothing is wasted. I'm mm. going to remember. I think that's that's beautifully said. How do we live life such that nothing is wasted? I think that should be a t-shirt in so many, on so many levels right now. We'll split the profits. Okay, cool, cool. 50, 50. We'll get half of your, your <laughs> foundation. That's right. <laughs> um, remind me of the original question. I just got carried away. <laughs> no, I was just talking about building each one building on itself, you know, on, on uh, like this, in essence, this beautiful mosaic that is being built, you know, of, of your life and what led to you, you kind of hitting the, the pause button, you know, right. pre-COVID and saying, I'm going to write a book. I just, you're like a copywriter. I like some of the things you say. I steal everything that's good. I love that. <laughs> Nothing is wasted and it's a mosaic. Okay, so what made me pay, press pause? I'd say it wasn't an overnight thing. Mm -hmm. I've been interested to write this book since like 2017. I was kind of sparked by a couple of conversations and I was uh, sitting at a dinner one night, one of those business dinners, and I didn't know everybody I was sitting around and somebody said, what do you do on the weekends? You know, to, to I break the ice. And I said, you know, I'm setting like four hours aside every weekend to try and start writing a book. I don't know if I can write. I don't know how to write a book. I don't know the process, but I'm just trying to get these stories down while they're fresh in my mind. Turns out the woman sitting across from me coordinates TEDx for Shanghai. And wow. it's one of the big ones. She mm -hmm. does it completely the right way, full nine months, done in the Shanghai theater with thousands in the audience. And she invited me to be a part of that, which was amazing. So I put the book on the back burner and did the, the sort of nine month process of TEDx. After TEDx, I thought, you know, the stories have been told because this book is not about being published or it's not about, you know, becoming an author. It's really, like, can we tell these stories? Mm. So, so I kind of put it on the back burner. And then that was when I started um, considering a new role at Starbucks and every, every upstart is like sort of starting a new company. Cause you're trying to figure out where you are, who your people are, what your objectives are, Absolutely. where you want to leave an impact. And, and then 
it kept niggling at me. And so there was an opportunity when we went to the States, it was with a six month temporary assignment. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? that's going to be a good catalyst. Maybe it'll turn into a full-time job, but if it doesn't, that'll be my motivation to write the book. And, you know, very early on, I think it was pretty clear. This is, this is a temporary assignment. So mm -hmm. let's do it the best we can. And then to your point, we had a beautiful home in Bellevue, gorgeous views. My husband built me a little stand-up desk and I'm like, I'm going to stand here for a year and write. <laughs> this is perfect. And that, that was the thing. It's not super scary because you're not leaving work forever. You're saying, you know what, this has been building. And there, if, if there's a passion building within you, you know, that is where, not that you're sure to succeed, but you're most likely to right. succeed. Right. So let's lean into it and let's give ourselves a time frame. Uh, maybe like a startup, like I, I'm not just going to do this forever, bleeding mm -hmm. money, but let's do one year. We can afford one year. We can figure out what we want to do after that. And, and success is not defined for me. It's not that I find a publisher. It's not that it's done. It's just, let's do it for a year. I, uh, I mean, looking at, at your trajectory, you know, corporate trajectory, I mean, so often somebody that would find themselves in your position would almost be locked into the golden handcuffs, you know, mm -hmm. that you're, you're saying, I, it, I would love to take a year off, but I, I, I my mm -hmm. salary is just oppressively high, you know, compared to what I'm stepping into for the, for the next year. Plus, I mean, most companies won't let you just take a leave of absence for, for a year and come back right. and do the role. So you're, you're, you're stepping out of salary and out of position mm. at the same time. So uh, knowing that that you probably had, you know, a path back, not necessarily there, but somewhere, mm -hmm. because by that time you have an extensive network and, and this tremendous experience that you, you've built. But it, there, there had to be a little fear and trepidation as you're kind of stepping into this new normal, because you're thinking, I'm spending a year, I have this book in my mind, but I've never just yeah. done this. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been... I've been in meetings and emails and phone calls and decisions I have to make that have, you know, pretty good impact. And, you know, now I'm going to be staring out the, at the water and, and typing in a standing desk for a year. Yeah, I, I'd have to admit, I don't think there's fear and trepidation. And I think that's part of my makeup. I did a talk, another TEDx talk called Killing Chickens. And it's the concept of what is your discomfort index? My, my personal mm -hmm. discomfort index is really high. In fact, where I get the most uncomfortable is when I'm complacent and comfortable. Mm. <laughs> Nothing drives me like getting up in the morning being like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do. There's no way I'm going to get it done. Like I'm driving my CFO crazy right now because we have offices right next to each other. And every day I'm like, I'm on, can you believe it's six already? And then on every Friday, I promise you it's Friday again. It's Friday again. I'm always like, I'm on, it's Friday again. How is this happening so fast? I'm thrilled. I love my job. I love when I'm like in crazy change management, there are a million things going on. That's my, that's my deepest joy, mm. especially when I'm surrounded by people that it is my responsibility to support and to make sure that yeah. they're thriving too. Yeah. So with the book, it was this massive, it's like, I'm like a kid with a, a Christmas gift under the tree. When I have this kind of challenge, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like the biggest gift I could ever give myself one year to go do this thing. And I am blessed with an incredible family that totally supported it because uh, my husband didn't have a full-time role either. I'm like, babe, this is a big decision. You good? He's like, you've been talking about this book. Yes, please. You know, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> only if you will be quiet and not bring it up again for a year. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. that, that's, that's not agreement. That's resignation. I think that's, that's <laughs> like going, yeah, okay, fine. You win. Yeah, absolutely. You win. So you, you keep mentioning the term change management. 
So the places that you mentioned that you've worked in, they're mm -hmm. not startups, they're, they're established companies. So yes. kind of weave that in a little bit for me, because, you know, normally when I think of change management, I'm thinking either, either you are completely revamping an organization mm -hmm. or it is a, a startup. Yeah. So how do you, what is what does it look like change management at Starbucks or change management at yeah. you know international or the what's the hotel group you were with Intercontinental Hotel Intercontinental group. yeah yeah I'll start a little earlier in my career and I'll say you know change management is a phrase we all use but maybe it is a place of um, dramatically challenging targets without the resources to get there naturally. Yeah. That's what's exciting to me, right? right? And a lot of times that is a, a transitional period or when your goals are shifting from A to B. My first taste of this was actually working in Arkansas. So I was paid by Procter & Gamble, working for the Procter & Gamble retail team. You had to be at Walmart. Walmart. I was gonna say, yes, you were in Northwest yes, Arkansas, that's right. And I loved it. I love Walmart as a company. I love P&G as a company. And you, know, we, you and I were just chit-chatting earlier about this intersection of purpose and profit. Mm -hmm. Big companies don't naturally come to mind when we talk about this, but those mm -hmm. are two companies I really respect and admire for, for the same reasons. And, and in that role, it was a challenging environment in that you're paid for by PNG, but you're there to support Walmart. Right. And their, their KPIs are not aligned. Right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what makes it so fun because it forces you. Somebody asked me once, how do you find the win-win between two hard rocks? And my answer was find a third rock. I don't know if rock's the right word, but the idea that you can bring in incremental value. So what else can I bring to the table that changes the shape of our discussion? Mm. And, and, you know, there are a couple of things that we did in terms of completely new retail experiences at that point. We brought in um, assets that Procter & Gamble had assets, access to, like America's Next Top Model was mm. a media asset. Right. And again, not intuitive, Procter & Gamble, Walmart, and Tyra Banks, but um, there's this woman, she's now named Jennifer uh, Hudson. She used to be Jennifer Holiday. She had this idea, what if we bring in America's Next Top Model, link it with CoverGirl, and bring it to life at Walmart? And we ended up creating a whole new, multiple seasons of shows around this idea. It's completely new. And because you come from that scarcity mentality of, I don't have enough to do what I need to do, it forces you to think creatively on what right. else is possible. Right. Or, or we're looking at shelf space, right? You fight for your share of mm -hmm. shelf at Walmart. Yep. And man, three inches is, is like translates to millions of dollars at Walmart. Mm -hmm. So how else can we think about share of shelf? And walmart.com was still relatively new. So we right. thought, could we work with them? And what does that look like? So those were moments where I'd say they were the most exciting moments of working with P&G and Walmart. And then um, I'd say Apple was less of change management than really startup mode. Mm -hmm. I was, I think, employee 31 in China. And mm, we were in a real right. small office. We had to figure out how to do everything, you know, how to work with the government on queuing. People wanted, thousands of people wanted to queue in front of our store before it opened or before product launched. Um, I remember my husband, bless him, we had to figure out how to pay our employees a Chinese New Year bonus, which sometimes is called the 13 month bonus. Mm -hmm. We didn't have systems in the company to go 
allocate that. So we took a duffel bag to the bank every day because you have a maximum that you're allowed to take out of the bank. We'd fill our duffel bag like tiny a little bank robbers. In this bag. I'm yeah. Walking across yeah. the street like it's a drug deal. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the max we could take out at that point, if I remember, is like 5,000 each. So it was like 10,000 RMB a day or something like that. <laughs> and then we'd sit at home and we had like one CCTV channel with English speaking <laughs> shows and we would like stuff red envelopes for my team. <laughs> right. That was building. really fun. It was this really fun. Team building. This is and I love doing. that. I love that sense. You know, we talk a lot about servant leadership as well, but I love that sense that like, I'm serving my team in this. This is a silly thing. It's administrative work, but it's going to bring them so much joy. Mm -hmm. So the anticipation of that is really fun. And then at Intercontinental Hotels, that was good old full-on change management. Mm -hmm. It was hotels have always done things a certain way. And now we know we cannot continue that way. Right. Right. So how do we restructure, reoperationalize? And my boss brought me in knowing I'd never worked in hospitality. That was part of the reason it's hard for a fish to change the water around them when they don't even know what water is. <laughs> it's a lot easier to bring, you know, a burden who can't breathe in for very long and, and look around and be like, okay, I'm going to have to figure out how to make myself a straw. Otherwise I'll die. You know? <laughs> so he was very supportive of me, um, of allowing us to restructure, build new departments. We built our first business intelligence and analytics department, which is not a traditional you know, no. team within no. hospitality. And there's a strong reason for that. We were able to see that good old hockey stick result as a, as, as an outcome of what we did. And that was so gratifying, but it wasn't just the result. It was building the right leadership team along the way. It was watching people get energized and lit up. You know, it, change is a hard thing. Nobody wants to change. So at first helping set a very clear vision of what the future could be, even if there's a lot of doubt overshadowing that spark of hope, there's this light that you see of, hmm, well, that's different. That could be really interesting. Let's see where this goes. And then it's your job to sort of kind of gently fan that flame and then try to get some quick wins. So people right, build right. that spark of hope into optimism of like, oh my gosh, I think we can do this. Yeah. And then continuing to kind of, yeah, turn it into something really extraordinary. And then it takes on a life of its own. I mean, I think it is so important that you do have those early wins because I mean, you can cast vision as a leader, but if it's not a realistic vision, they, you know, your employees will see through that pretty quickly because they understand the environment. They understand the history. They understand where they had been. And um, I, I really am amazed at the, at the vision of the boss at Intercontinental to give oh. you that kind of latitude. And, and um, I mean, I, I, as you mentioned that, I'm thinking, I wonder if every time she applied for a job, if she was kind of like testing the the vision and latitude of mm. the people she would work with, because I could see very quickly if you were placed in a, in a, in a cage, it would, it would drive you crazy. I mean, if you yeah. weren't able to in, enact change and, and cast vision for your division, I think that would really be difficult environment for you. Kevin, I am really transparent. So you know me as soon as you meet me, but that was a really insightful comment because you're right. It took me time to learn that. I think this is why it's good to go broad before you go deep because mm. you learn the things you like to do and the things yep. you don't like to do as much. You learn the context in which you thrive and the places where you don't. And you learn the types of bosses that just make your job a total joy. Like right now, I work for somebody as good as Kenneth. Kenneth was my boss at IHG. Mm -hmm. His, this one's name is Alex. This one, <laughs> as though he were like something right. you pick off the shelf. So 
Sorry, Alex. Lost number 13. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> These guys are extraordinary and they, they are the, the types of bosses. I think they are, you know, I, I actually forced myself during my professional halftime writing the book, thinking about where I wanted to go back to work because it's kind of a blank slate for the first time ever. I'm not being recruited into a role. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do you want to do if no one's asking you to something that looks really interesting? Oh my gosh, it's a completely different question. Yep. And, and I thought, you know, the boss is really important to me. So how do I mm -hmm. codify the things that are important? <laughs> nice is not it. So <laughs> right. I think a couple of things. One is they are internationally minded. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they understand a bigger worldview. That sounds silly in some ways. Why is that important? But especially if you're working on international business, somebody who has Absolutely. a broader sense um, and an agility of thinking. And, and I think who withhold judgment. Mm -hmm. It's when you work with folks who are like, oh, you know how China is, or, oh, you Chinese, you're like, oh gosh, you know, that could be offensive. But more importantly, I have to break down so many barriers to help you understand the context in which I work. Right. So that internationally minded I found is really important. I do think that combination of head and heart, mm -hmm. somebody who like pushes really hard and has high expectations, but really loves people and loves their job. That's a great combination. And then I think the people who set crazy high KPIs, but then give me the latitude to do it. Mm -hmm. Those three are my criteria, not criteria, but like parameters in which right. I think I'm the great, I'm a great fit for that job. I mean, I, that is, that's so true. I mean, if, if you have high goals, it's okay if they, if you will be resourced to meet those goals. But exactly. if, if you have a very restrictive, you know, environment and still have high expectations, you know, high yeah. expectations and low tolerance, you know, I mean, that's, that's the, the formula for death, you know, yeah. in, in your, in our positions, but I, I would love to continue chatting about the, the business side of things, but I really want to drill down in, in the book and sure. really, and, and what you're launching with your social legacy website, but so let's talk about the the uh, spare room book and and what was kind of the the genesis of that. So first of all, we struggle to categorize this book. Is it self help? Is it business? You know, is it um, inspirational literature? We we weren't sure. Even as we talk about the book, and I'll talk about the genesis of it in a moment, we struggled to think about where to categorize it because my my audience primarily are business professionals mm -hmm. and that's the world I'm in. That's how, what I blog about. It's what I love to teach about. And yet a lot of it is not business content. It's about, you know, being an authentic leader, living in an intentional life and um, something that's more maybe inspirational literature. And, you know, I have this, um, quote, people are sending me quotes now as they read the book. How crazy is that? You're like, oh, I think I am an author now. He said, I found, I love, I absolutely love all the storytelling combined with pragmatism at the end for self-evaluation. It feels different than any other book I've read because of your ability to combine business, storytelling, psychology, purpose, spirituality, and coaching all at the same time. I thought, oh yeah, I wish I'd been able to articulate that better when I was describing what I want to write. Cause that is the thing. Where did it start? It started in our spare room. Mm -hmm. We've, we've had 16 kids staying with us over the last two decades from an 18 month old baby that was dying to lots of children to our oldest was in his early twenties, uh, yeah, early twenties. I think he was, a uh, just trying to finish his college degree in Shanghai before going back to South Korea. 
And all of them needed a safe place to stay. Either the oldest guy, Jishin, had been um, defrauded out of his rent and was going to have to go home in shame, not having finished his degree. Mm -hmm. All his money was gone. Two, you know, babies have had a number of special needs, et cetera. And so I thought, oh, their stories are just so extraordinary. I want to share them. And then I started realizing a lot of people don't know how big sometimes the social cracks can be. Like, what are the unintended consequences of um, a one-child policy? Right. What, did you know that? Did you know that child marriage is allowed in the U.S. and girls are married as young as twelve years old? I mean, people are just shocked when when I tell them we had a child bride in our house, and I'm like, "You guys know back then this is allowable very easily in all mm. fifty states, and mm. now it's starting to change." Um, so I wanted to kind of help drive that kind of awareness as well. And then as the book continued to take shape, it really became. I don't like to just talk for the sake of talking. I'm always very outcome oriented. So mm -hmm. how do you help people identify their own spare room? So as the topic continued to percolate, I realized a lot of people want something like this, or they say, I could never do what you do. And I, you know, the more people I meet and the more conversations I have, I don't believe it. I think everybody can do what we do. It just looks different for each person. Right. So then as we started to unpack that, I think there's a super simple model. Everyone's got an offer and everyone's got an offense. And the heart of that thing is your social legacy. So for me, my offer is we have a spare bedroom always. We love having people. Our family is really open and we have this sort of um, desire to be hospitable. We love hospitality. And then on the offense side, it is young people, babies, kids who have been marginalized or are vulnerable and just need a safe place. So the middle of that space is our social legacy. But, you know, when you read the book, you're going to find these amazing stories from uh, Karen, who's a physical therapist, to Quentin, who is in Afghanistan serving the military for eight years and now has created a nonprofit dance movement. It doesn't always have to be student body left like Quentin. Karen does something in her free time. She gives up all her free time to do something that, as a result, saves hundreds of orphans in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. These are all extraordinary. And, you know, Quentin is in the limelight a lot because he's building his, his business. Karen, is still a physical therapist living in Texas with four kids, one of whom she adopted from the Ukraine. And she's like just one of those quiet unsung heroes who lives an extraordinary full life because I think she's at the heart of her social legacy. So how do we help everybody figure out what that thing is? So what is the, or what have you found in talking to people is the internal motivation? So, you know, guilt's a terrible motivator. I mean, you can say, you can shame people into saying you, you should be giving back. You know, yeah. you should pay it forward. You should, you know, you, you fill in the blank. But at the end of the day, I mean, what is the internal motivation? How do you, how do people find that? Well, I think, well, read the book because we have exercises. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that is a great question because I'll tell you a couple of examples. They're all different for every person. I believe mm -hmm. we're designed with a very unique one of a kind, like a snowflake set of capabilities and offerings. It's, it's upon us to define them as clearly as we can. So we're armed with that knowledge and confidence in what we offer that can help us figure out what we want to do. But the catalyst, like Harper, who went to the, like a beautiful blonde haired, blue eyed, white girl from Minneapolis went to the Congo because she, she was yep. driven by curiosity. 
she had met one of the lost boys of Sudan and couldn't get it out of her head. And she said, for my first job, I want to go across the world and see the other side. And then she worked there for 10 years. Mm -hmm. I, you know, everybody's driven by a different impetus. I, Shannon, who works in, with ocean plastics, she saw this moment of uh, a turtle's corpse cut open and all those bottle caps stuck in its throat. And her daughter was was born with an unusual ailment. And one day her daughter said, I feel like I have a bottle cap in my throat and I can't breathe, mom. And it just like connected for her. She's like, this is what I need to be doing because I totally understand what we're doing to mm -hmm. marine life. So right. everyone's got that catalyst. Yep. And, and you know, you'll read all these stories about how people follow that catalyst, but not everybody does. You might feel something, but you don't exactly know how to lean into it. Some people are sure like Shannon or, or Hopper and other people. I think I've met a lot of people who generally know their offer. They're like, this is what I kind of have to offer, but I mm -hmm. don't know where to direct it. This is what I want to go after, but I don't know how. And that's why this is really very practical. This book in its exercises, because unpack your offer. I go through like step-by-step step, very methodically in, I think the PNGers in my life would be proud, very PNG format. <laughs> By the end of chapter one, you should be able to write down okay, here's my offer. I'm clear. And chapter two is here's my offense. I should be clear. And I was thinking, you know, I spent a lot of time on chapter two. How do you unpack all the offenses in the world? I ended up uh, using wow. the United Nations 17 mm -hmm. sustainability develop, sustainable development goals mm -hmm. because they cover everything and mm -hmm. then helping um, bring them to a place where they're understandable to all of us. And then when you read them, you know, check the box of the thing that you read and you're like, yeah, that resonates. I did not know that. And, or that's not okay. So then you kind of get your offer and you have your offense and then you work through what's my social legacy. What do I want it to be? Because if I haven't had that catalytic moment that says, oh my gosh, that's what I want to do. Mm. Then this can take you step-by-step step through. Oh yeah, that feels absolutely right for me. And it may be a career pivot or it may be what I do outside of work. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, and, and we talked a little bit off camera about the idea. It's not, not necessarily the intersection. Sometimes it's the integration of, you know, this life purpose and an opportunity. And I'm, I really like the way that you've, that you frame that in the book with the, you know, the kind of the intersection between the offer and the events where what's the overlap of those two things. And that's kind of the, the golden triangle, you know, or a golden circle of opportunity, you know, that you step into. I think another thing that will happen, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I can almost sense this from talking to you and, and many, many stories in your book about when people find that they're actually energized by that. It's not, it's not a drain on them. It actually gives them energy, you know, to, to fulfill that purpose because they do, they do understand their purpose. I think that's so well said. I mean, we talk about growth mindset, right? Versus fixed mindset. We talk right. about an abundance mentality. I think this is a great example. I think it is about the power of and, and I think it's really important to find this intersection point because it's not what you'd referenced earlier, which is how do I carve out an hour to go do something good? How do right. I go find a way to do more in my life, which is so squeezed because I'm already so busy. I think when you find this intersection, the social legacy, it, magically multiplies your time. Mm -hmm. It does. People ask you, how do you do it no all? You it. do it because you're in the heart of it. It's mm. not hard and it's joyful and work and life are not a balance to me because that balance implies a sort of perfect right. plank marked on an, on a pivot. And it's always moving. It's an integration. It's like a mishmash of everything. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I'm going back to your word mosaic. And, um, 
how do we how do we find that work life integration? And when we talk about work life integration, it's not just my family and the soccer games and then work. It's also what am I contributing? Because when you're mm. contributing at the heart of what you have been made to give, you'll find it is the most joyful thing. I the the book. I mean, if you look at the book and and the title of it, you know, spare room. I mean, I love the question in the book. It's not just about the spare room itself. It's that's an idea. It is what is your spare room, and that is yeah. the the question of the book. Is like you know, you, in the, throughout the whole thing, you're asking, you know, people to de to really decipher, you know, through a process that you lay out. How do you find your spare room? How do you find your purpose? How do you find that intersection of offense and offer, as you put mm -hmm. it in the book so eloquently? I'm, I really like the way that you've, you've done that. And I, and I just really want to commend you on um, just the, the, I guess, the amount of purpose that you, you've kind of tried to instill in, in, in a servant heart, servant hearted way. And just the amount of energy you've expended to really to, um, I'm, not, I'm really struggling for words here because it is, it is just a humility, you know, that, that you have to exhibit to be able to reach across the street and bring someone into your home, you know, and provide at, at the, the moment of their deepest and, and greatest need, you know, you, you just offer that to them. And it's not, you know, you, you had no idea how long that was going to last. You know, no. you open that door, it, it could be 24 hours, it could be 24 months. I mean, you really don't know how long that that, that offer is going to last. But but uh, I, I know that, you know, your heart was bigger than the than your fear or your, your concern, you know, that you're thinking, what are we doing here? You know, sometimes mm -hmm. we, we take a leap without even necessarily counting the cost of it in the, in the greater scheme of things. But um, I wanted to read something as we were closing today that that is right right at the very end of your book, and um, this is this is such a a powerful thing to write your epitaph. I mean, you you have a moment at the book, and this is like, and I think this was yours. It said, "She lived a life of purpose and integrity, every day filled with joy and laughter. She gave outrageously. She extended grace unceasingly." and lived her life in such a way that death finds her empty. I mean, what a, what a tombstone to put at the, at the end of this, you know, this path we call life. And Emily, I, I just, I really want to thank you for just taking time today to, to talk and to share and really set an example for the rest of us to, to follow and to be that, that point of the spear that is, is really giving back in such a profound way and really just playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Emily, thanks for being here today. Kevin, thank you so much. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.